Hello there, welcome to this week's podcast. This week I am talking to Dr. Cynthia Bulick, and most of you will know who she is, but for those that you don't, she is a distinguished professor of eating disorders in the Department of Psychiatry at the School of Medicine at University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. She's a professional nutrition at the Gillings School of Global Public Health and founder of the UNC Center of Excellence for Eating Disorders. Cynthia Bulick is also professor at the Department of Medical Epidemiology and Biostatistics at Karioska Institute in Stockholm, Sweden. And that's where she directs the Centre for Eating Disorders Innovation. And you'll have heard me talk to Dr. Bulick before on the podcast a couple of times now, actually. Last time was funnily almost, almost exactly a year ago, I think. And we were talking about the study that was currently underway, which is now completed and we can talk about the results of it um now if you have had your eye on facebook twitter or pretty much anywhere social media you're probably going to guess that the study that we're talking about is one that's titled genome-wide association study identifies eight risk locate and implicates metabolic psychiatric origins for anorexia nervosa hmm what does that mean well I guess we'll just have to find out, won't we? Here is Dr. Bulick. My name is Dr. Cynthia Bulick, or Cindy for short. I am the founding director of the UNC Center of Excellence for Eating Disorders, and I am also a professor at Karolinska Institutet in Stockholm, Sweden. You've had some pretty exciting uh, study results come through this year, haven't you? Just recently, this last month. So I think that unless you think it's going to be important to give a little bit of history of the studies and the things that you've been working on in the past, which it might be if people don't have a clue what you've been working on, might want to sort of give a little bit of brief talk about that. But I'd love to get into the most recent research. Okay, so I'll just give a real quick slide in. So really for the past couple of decades, we've been looking at the way in which eating disorders run in families. Um, and the extent to which they're heritable. So is the reason that they run in families due to genetic factors. And leading up to the study that we're talking about today, we knew that they ran in families and we knew that the reason they run in families is due to genetic factors. Um, But this study sort of capitalizes on sort of new technology that has come out of the genetics field, basically a genome-wide association study design. And what that means is, and I'll give you numbers from the very beginning. So we had almost 17,000 people with anorexia nervosa and 55,000 controls. And we got blood samples from them and we genotyped them all. And then what a genome-wide association study lets you do is you sort of slather about a million markers across the genome. And then you compare the genomes of those people with the illness to the genomes of those people without the illness and you look for where the differences lie. And what this paper did is two main things. First, it identified eight areas on the genome where significant differences were, basically pointing and saying these eight places contain genes that might influence risk for anorexia. That's the first piece, um, and that's both a breakthrough and a beginning at the same time. I'll explain that later. The second piece that I think is even more cool um, is that we were able to do these genetic correlations with other traits and disorders to really ask in a concrete way to what extent do the same genes 
influence risk for anorexia as all these other traits. And they sort of fell into a bunch of buckets. And the main buckets were psychiatric disorders, physical activity, and metabolism. And those bottom two, physical activity and metabolism, are sort of the new pieces and the revolutionary pieces from this research. And I'm going to stop there and let you ask me some more questions, and then we can go into more detail. Well, I love that physical activity came up because I think that for those of us that struggled with compulsive movement um, for a while, I know in the last 10 years or so, especially because a lot of us have been talking about it a lot, it's been a lot more understood and maybe something that clinicians are looking for. But before that, it really wasn't even a consideration and was very confusing, I think, to many of us. So I'm thrilled to see that the the physical activity piece has come up as something that may be genetically implied. Yes, uh, yes. That's, that's very exciting. Um, and so the, I know that this gathering all of this has been years worth of work. And this whole study has been a really big deal. Um, my, my first question really is, it, is, did it turn out anything like you'd expect it would? I actually think the results are more encouraging than I thought they would be. Um, you know, there was a chance that we might not have found any loci associated with anorexia, but you know, this basically says, okay, folks, you are on the right track. You've gone from one locus to eight loci. And from now on, it's just, we've reached the inflection point. We're going to find more and they're going to start sorting into pathways, just like we're seeing with other illnesses. So I would say that that's incredibly encouraging. And the second piece that did not turn out the way we thought, although we had hints, and I think I've probably been thinking about it for a long time, is the extent to which the metabolic piece came to the fore. Uh, you know, where we're actually to the point where we're saying, I think we need to look at anorexia nervosa as a metabopsychiatric illness. And so for people that maybe don't understand how metabolism works or could be involved in this, can you explain that metabolic piece? Sure. And we don't actually know. And I think that's the that's the next step. So all that we did in this paper is we identified the fact that genes that influence risk for anorexia nervosa also are associated with um, metabolic factors, with anthropometric factors like you know BMI and waist circumference and all sorts of other body measurements, um, as well as glycemic traits. So that suggests that what we're looking looking at is definitely a psychiatric phenomenon. So we know there's a psychiatric component to it. But it's saying we can't look at that in isolation. We have to look at it together with the fact that there might be something metabolic going on in anorexia nervosa as well. What that is, we don't know yet. Right. But it could be something like a genetically influenced metabolic response to energy deficit to not sure to the situation of not having enough food in your body yeah and that's i mean you you know me tabitha that's my hypothesis that there's Mm -hmm. there is something that happens in someone who is biologically prone to anorexia nervosa when they're in energy deficit or negative energy balance their body responds differently and maybe you know, when we move forward and we start getting some people who, you know, do metabolism research for a living involved in this, they'll be like, yep, that's where it is. And that that's really exciting. And I guess another reason that I find it very exciting is because 
one of the only theories of other than the genetic side of things, but on the sort of more this is a theory of what anorexia is that ever resonated with me and that I talk about and write about a lot is the migration response theory that this is a response to not enough food in the environment mm. and I can't help think with genes like anything that evolves within humans has to be there somewhat by design at some point. Well, I think the interesting thing about it is that the prevalence of anorexia seems to be staying stable across time. You know, we're not seeing big fluctuations in its prevalence. Um, it's there. I don't want to say it's there for a reason, um, but we have variations in our metabolism across people for a reason. Um, and um, I'm, I'm one to not speculate about sort of the evolutionary advantage of anorexia, but um, I will just possibly leave it at that. Excellent. Okay, so I, I did get quite a few questions online, um, Cindy, and I'd love to go through some of these. And um, Okay, so one person writes, it would be great if you could ask about any link between irritable bowel syndrome and anorexia nervosa and the best treatment pathways for these two conditions running concurrently. Yes, that's a great question. Not able to answer it necessarily from this paper, um, but from some other work that we're doing, we're seeing a lot on a population level um, of associations between anorexia nervosa and the other eating disorders and autoimmune illnesses with GI components. Um, and I think talking to GI docs as well and, and to many patients and families we have underattended to the, both the role of the GI system in developing eating disorders and in how many GI problems there are even after recovery from eating disorders. So, um, you know, one of the things that is sort of on my to-do list is to engage more GI physicians in this illness. Um, for if anything, for the simple reason is that's often where people with eating disorders show up first. And sometimes their eating disorder gets missed because the GI docs are so focused on the GI system, they miss that there's a larger context behind this, which is the eating disorder. Um, so I don't have a clear answer for her, but it is a really important direction that we're aware of and are moving forward in. Excellent. Next question. Um, those of us with kids in true recovery seem to have a few things in common. We feed them high fats, high calories, get them to a much higher weight and supervised eating for as long as it takes, which is often years. My daughter needed 6,000 calories a day at the age of 11 to 14 just to keep up with hypermetabolism and growth. Do you think this study will have substantial impact on how professionals in the eating disorder realm treat eating disorders? Will they finally understand the need to raise target rates and feed higher fats and calories to stop the resolving door of emissions? I love this question. I couldn't have said it better. Um, and I'm going to say not just clinicians, but insurance companies. Um, there's a little bit of speculativeness here, but I am going to say that this research does have the potential to support the, impo to support the importance of re-nourishing someone to a point where their metabolism has the opportunity to re-equilibrate and reset in such a way that it decreases the likelihood of their body just plummeting in terms of body weight again. Um, I think it is strong encouragement 
um, that we can use these data to, to, to tell insurance companies, no, you cannot kick this person out of the hospital at a BMI of 15. Um, you know, I have heard from my New Zealand friends for a long time that they have much less revolving door if they can refeed someone up to a BMI of 21. Um, and we never get to do that here without insurance sort of yanking support. And I think this resetting and restabilizing of the metabolism and being completely vigilant for the rest of your life about negative energy balance is going to be the way to go. Excellent. That's exciting, isn't it? That's that's the really exciting piece, yeah, I think. Yeah. Because we can we can speculate, we can have theories about why and if and all of those mm-hmm. things. But if it can change the way that we help people, and specifically insurance companies, because yes. that's where the money is. Yes. Um, yeah. Excellent. So um, another person writes, I'm wondering about how this will inform the current diagnostic requirements for anorexia and whether it will begin to shift the emphasis away from rigid weight and psychological criteria. What sort of signs and symptoms would Dr. Buick like to see clinicians using in light of the findings? You have some very astute colleagues and friends. I think that's a super question. Um, And For some reason, I think we might have talked about this the last time, Um, but I have said for a while that there's this core of anorexia nervosa across time that is this uncanny ability to reach this low body weight, whether intentionally or unintentionally, Um, the ability to override hunger signals and stay there. And that seems to be the core of illness, whether it be back in the 1500s where it was packaged as something that was sort of saintly and religious, or now where it's packaged as something that is more sort of part of thin ideal internalization and societal ideals. It's that underlying core that seems to be the central pathology that we're talking about. Um, Whether, I mean, and I think there are plenty of people out there in many different countries who have that core, who don't have the psychological packaging, who have anorexia nervosa. Um, So I guess hopefully this will shift us more towards focusing on that core rather than all of the sort of social trappings that we decorate it with. Mm -hmm. Um, And what about, and I've actually had a few questions around uh, atypical anorexia. Mm -hmm. And um, I know that the people used in the study were just people that had been diagnosed with typical anorexia, so had reached that low right. BMI. Um, and so the question here I, um, from somebody is, I find myself wondering if the research is missing a component if, of looking at atypical anorexia as well. The research may be skewed by only including patients that have had a metabolism that leads to a natural tendency to lose weight to a low level when malnourished. Yes, I think I actually responded to that one on Facebook. And I have two sets of answers because I really want to talk about this atypical anorexia nervosa concept. Um, I, I, honest to God, I think we're doing a disservice by calling it atypical anorexia nervosa. Um, I think that for someone who is normal weight, overweight, obese, whichever, you know, above the low weight range, wherever someone is, if they're in a starvation state, if they are malnourished, Um, they actually deserve a label of their own. I mean, it is a recognizable syndrome. Um, We see this. People tell us they experience it. Um, 
And we've sort of thrown it into the anorexia nervosa bucket without any data to support that. Um, and I, frankly, I, I've been trying to think of what would I call it if I had the opportunity to sort of like baptize this syndrome um, with its own name. And the reason I've been thinking about it is if someone came in to our inpatient unit that had this syndrome, you know, let's say that they were at a high BMI, but they had all of the other features of anorexia nervosa, would I treat them the same way as I would someone who had a typical, anore or typical anorexia nervosa. And I'll go back to the case that you told me about, this poor 11-year-old person who needed 16,000 calories a day. So would I actually I tell that person- she's, I think she said, said 6,000. Yeah, well, it could, 4,000, 5,000, a lot of energy. You know, would I take this person and say, you need to gain a kilo a week and I need to feed you 5,000 calories? Would that be, would I treat it the same way? And the answer is probably no. I would probably say, we need to get you renourished. We need to get you out of malnourishment. We need to get you stabilized. Um, but we don't have those data. Um, and I actually think that in order to understand that syndrome better, we need to give it its own space and its own attention. And I want to do genetic studies on whatever we're gonna call this syndrome, because I think one way of figuring out if they're the same or different is via genetics. We can find out whether, for example, the metabolic piece is the same across the two. And I would bet right now it might be different. And that might be an important distinguishing factor. Mm -hmm. Okay, and the next question, the last question is, I've heard estimates in the past stating that eating disorders are up to 70% genetic. Do the results from this study suggest for anorexia that there is always a genetic component in its development? Another good question. Um, and the language here gets really confusing. Um, and so I'm going to sort of speak in non-numbers to some extent. Um, we know that the heritability based on twin studies are, is around 50 to 60%. Um, but I think what this study tells us is that you can get anorexia nervosa if you have varying degrees of genetic risk. So there are some people who have really high genetic risk who develop the illness, and they might not have any sort of environmental factors that trigger it. They're just at risk. Um, but then you also have people who have low genetic risk, but maybe have a high environmental load and they develop the illness even though they don't have a high genetic load. And I think once our sample size gets bigger, what we might find, and again, I'm speculating here, is there might be some people who have sort of a higher loading on the psychiatric side and some people who have a higher loading on the metabolic side. And we might even be able to use the genetics to start identifying sort of biological subtypes of anorexia nervosa. And that might mean different treatment approaches. So really moving toward more tailored or personalized interventions. Mm -hmm. So I want to just go back to the atypical anorexia question, just because that really interests me. Um, so I, I might be working with somebody who say, say they're in a body that's a BMI that's not in the criteria for anorexia, they might be in a BMI of, of 23. But they, they started off in a, in, in a BMI of 26. And if you look at all of their families, their families are all in larger BMI bodies. So around that range. And so 
we can tell that that person, although that is a BMI of 23, for that person, it is a suppressed body weight, which has been suppressed via restriction. Um, and so that would be exactly the same as for me, at my three point below my natural BMI at my suppressed body weight. But I would have been diagnosed with anorexia because three points below my natural BMI for me would have put me in the criteria for anorexia. Whereas somebody in a naturally larger body, it won't. Um, and I have met, I've met so many people that are in that, that situation, actually. They're in their larger body um, and they're suppressing their body weight and they're displaying all of the same behaviors that I did of restriction and compulsive movement and all of the same hyper-awareness around food and just, it's all the same apart from the weight. And so I guess my question there is really the treatment would still point towards encouraging that person to stop restricting food. Right, but it might not be gain a kilo a week. Um, you know, it, there, there might be differences. And, and I think the point you raise, let's look at it on a continuum. So the example that you gave is someone who was at a, um, and here we are talking about BMIs, but BMI of 23, and they maybe in quotation marks should be 26 or are biologically, their body is biologically happy at 26, right? Um, then our strategy might be to get them up to that biological happy place, um, for lack of a better term. Um, but we don't know. I mean, where's the cutoff? You know, if someone comes in, you could have someone who comes in with a BMI of 30 and the rest of their family is 36 and they're or, uh, of 30 and the rest of their body family is 26 and they have all the same behaviors and they're in a suppressed weight, but their family doesn't tell you anything about where their body should be. Um, you know, we actually need to look across the continuum of weight and then ask the question, is the person in your example biologically the same? Is the person in my example biologically the same? You know, these are empirical questions. Right now, our field, for some reason, has gotten engaged in this sort of opinion fight about whether atypical anorexia is the same as anorexia. And you know, with my scientist hat on, I want to answer that question from the science perspective and really be able to come back and say, hey, these are the similarities and these are the differences. And that's sort of what my plan and mission is in this whole enterprise. But then say if we were talking about something like breast cancer, mm -hmm. you could say that breast cancer is breast cancer regardless of somebody's body size. And so I guess my question is I don't understand why if all the symptoms of anorexia are there and the person has is a suppressed body weight, it's just not suppressed to get past this magic number of 18 or whatever it is to be diagnosed as anorexia. But I'm going to go with your breast cancer analogy. So here's the beauty of breast cancer. So they have done such a good job in genetics that they can look at the person's genotype and the, the genotype of their cancer and make decisions about which intervention is going to be appropriate for them. Um, and wouldn't it just be lovely if we could do something similar across the spectrum? Um, and... I guess I'm gonna put the question back to you, Tabitha. Um, why, why doesn't it deserve a special name at some point? 
Um, why does it have to be lumped? Or because I know how you feel. I you know I've heard you talk about this. Why is it important to you that atypical anorexia be called or put under the umbrella of anorexia? Um, the reason it's important to me is because the restriction that many individuals are going through that are in larger body, and I know the mental torment that such restriction creates, is not validated. And they often go to a treatment provider and their restriction is encouraged because they're told you don't have anorexia because you can't have because you're... And so that's really important. That's a very... It's a psychological factor for sure. Um, but it, it's very important. And I do think that restriction, dietary restriction... Um, levels this whole butterfly effect throughout a person's mind and body that can be devastating. And for the sake of saying really, oh, we just don't like it that people in larger bodies exist, if we could encourage people not to restrict food, I think that the vast majority of their symptoms that are symptoms of dietary restriction would go away. Yeah. So we don't disagree at all in terms of how dietary restriction can ravage mind and body. But all I'm saying is if we can legitimize the syndrome um, without getting into that argument about is it or isn't it the same, if we can give it a name and say this is a problem these people need and deserve help, um, and the way that that they get help is to reduce restriction, to normalize eating, to deal with the psychological factors that are driving the restriction. Um, you know, I think that sidesteps the whole, is it or isn't it? And just, and just say, here we go. This is, I mean, ARFID became a new illness, right? We were able to get that in there and BED became a new illness. We were able to get that in there. Well, by golly, this one deserves its own space as well. And I guess that's where I'm coming from. I, I know I, I absolutely understand that. I think that a lot of the problem and the reason why people get so upset about the atypical anorexia sort of um, label and things, and I know why I do, is just that, um, and it's it's an unspoken, I think, a lot of the time assumption that that means that you are not allowed to eat without restriction. Because, you know, if you had the label anorexia, then yes, the treatment may be eat without restriction. But if you don't have that, it doesn't, you're not justified to do that. Um, and I feel that a lot of people then feel very trapped. Right. Um, right. Yeah. And so I know I absolutely understand you're, you're trying to, you're trying to bullseye things. I think yeah. you're trying to pinpoint things and just narrow it down so that we can get as specialized with treatment as individualized with treatment as possible, which is a fantastic, wonderful thing. Um, I think that the the problem more is just the um the weight discrimination oh yeah that's everywhere that's um, in treatment yeah um and so i think i spend a large percentage of my time trying to um combat weight discrimination um and help people understand it doesn't matter what their weight is and their body size can be healthy, you know, taking a health to every size approach at any size. And they can also be restricting food at any size and restricting food drastically. And sometimes I, I talk to people who are in larger bodies, they're actually restricting far more drastically than I ever did. Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. I'm, I totally understand. And, you know, I, I think along those measures, and, and I worry about this, that being labeled atypical anorexia almost makes it it's almost pejorative in its own sense. Like mm -hmm. you're, you're not thin enough to be typical anorexia. 
Exactly. Um, and that that's one of the things that bothers me about that label. It's like, that's why I want to give it a more legitimate label that acknowledges that this is a problem. That these people are in distress that, like you said, they're restricting dangerously, you know, extremely. So I guess I'm on my I've got my own sort of campaign to try to legitimize it in a way that does it make it seem like it's not good enough to be anorexia? I mean, I don't know how else to say it. And, and while we're while we're at it, we could just get rid of the term anorexia, maybe because I think that means lack of appetite. Exactly. And I tell you what, my my appetite never went anywhere. Exactly. <laughs> I was always, I couldn't wouldn't let myself eat, but I was still pretty hungry a lot of the time. Yeah, we could do um, with a total makeover. Yeah, mm-hmm. but yeah, because really. The term anorexia, with this this genetic research that's coming out, doesn't really cover it anymore, does it? (laughs) That's an excellent point. Yep, it's true. (laughs) We just need a do-over. Yes, and and then ox hunger can go away as well, which is where bulimia comes from. Right, and then we, you know, looking actually, as you said, it's uh, um, getting the word metabolism in there somewhere in the actual name of what this is, and and, um, there's... Well, I guess the most exciting thing, Cindy, is that this is going to change a lot of the way that people think about this illness, which is something to be so celebrated, um, especially for those of us that didn't really ever fit into the stereotypical perception that people have about what anorexia is, which is most of us, actually. (laughs) No, I think, yeah, I hope that happens. In fact, this has gotten a lot of coverage and sort of outside of the eating disorders echo chamber which is really great. You know, we're getting out there in, you know, media and places where it hasn't been before. And our next frontier is medical textbooks. You know, it's like we need to make sure that the doctors of tomorrow and the healthcare professionals of tomorrow learn this and don't rely on 30-year-old, 40-year-old knowledge. And so talking about the next frontier then, so what are, what are, what are you working on now? Or are you just going to take a bit of a holiday? Oh, that'll be the day. Yeah. Um, no. So actually we're launching the next big adventure, which is the Eating Disorders Genetic Initiative or EDGY, um, at which point we're going to open this up to um, recruit people with bulimia nervosa, people with binge eating disorder. Um, in Sweden, we have the luxury of actually going across and getting all the people that fall in between the diagnostic cracks as well. Um, because one of the things that I want to do is figure out the extent to which our genome actually sort of reads the DSM. You know, do we actually divide people by AN, BN, and BED based on their genes, or is it all much more complicated and sort of intermixed? That's my guess. Yeah, I, I know what I think. What do you think? I think it's going to be kind of a gamish. And we're going to find people maybe who on the ends maybe have like pure anorexia, pure binge eating disorder. But in the middle, there's going to be lots of fluctuation and overlap. Uh, and maybe, and what I hope is that when our sample size gets bigger, we're going to be able to predict who those people are when they walk through our door for the very first time whether they're, you know, with anorexia, whether they're at risk for developing bulimia, whether they're at risk for developing a chronic course, um, and be able to tailor treatment accordingly. That's where we want to go. It sounds like that's the way that it's going to go as well. I have no, I have every faith that you're going to get there. And I, I often try, I often get very frustrated with the terms and the categories. But I also know that that's what human brains do. That's how we help ourselves understand the world is we try to categorize things to our best ability. And I think that when those terms came about, that was what was happening. It was just people doing their best to categorize things to their best ability. 
Um, the other thing that I think humans um, do and aren't so great at is, is changing once we learn new information. <laughs> once we have an idea oh, of a category oh. in our head, yes. it can be quite difficult to change. Yes. And so as this new and wonderful information comes in, there's just going to be change and that's hard. Yeah. And this is, you know, my the whole issue of unlearning. We are so terrible at unlearning. Um, but, you know, that's why we need to just keep getting this information out there. And whenever we hear someone say something stupid, um, we need to clarify, you know, everything's a teachable moment. Um, and I think this research gives us the opportunity to have a lot more of those teachable moments out there in the world. Yes. And so what's what's the timeline for uh, edgy. Yeah. So, well, funding is the beginning of it. So um, once we get funding in place, we'll be able to start. But our goal is actually 100,000. You know, people think 17,000 is a big study. It actually isn't. Um, and the rest of the some of the other psychiatric disorders are well over 100,000 at this at this point. And that's when you start seeing pathways you know, where you can start figuring out how can we intervene? How can we develop medications that might target some of these metabolic factors, for example? Um, but hopefully we're going to be able to get started in the fall. Um, so watch this space because, you know, we're going to need everybody who hasn't participated yet to spit into a tube and fill out some questionnaires and um, really help us reach this goal because, you know, this tells us we're on the right path, um, which just fuels my excitement about the next stage. Yeah, absolutely. And especially, you know, your goals with the next stage are incredibly exciting. I'm glad that doing this big thing that you've just done hasn't exhausted you. <laughs> and that you're actually, it seems, it sounds to me like it's fueled you. Absolutely. Yes, it has. Just what a wonderful woman, eh? Can we take a second for that? Because, okay, well, I remember a long, long, long time ago um, when I was first getting into eating disorder advocacy and I remember being on a listserv and somebody brought up something to do with genetics around anorexia and it was absolutely shot down. Like, we're not going to talk about that. It's just, it's just a, you know, it's just a fantasy theory. We're not going to talk about it. Everybody knows that these are psychiatric disorders and that, I, the fact I still remember that, and it was a long time ago, made me very angry, um, shows just how important the genetic part has been for me, and not just for me, so many of you as well, I know. I know that for many of us, for a really long time, we just thought something's not right with the way that this disorder, illness, whatever you want to call it, is being addressed. I'm sure there's something more biological going on in there got to be something genetic and without Cynthia Bulick we would still be being shut down for even thinking that and we're not anymore it's becoming established and don't you just love science and you have to have somebody though you have to have somebody that's really passionate about it that's got all the skills to do what Dr Bulick has done but really cares and she really cares. And like she just seems to get more energetic around it every time I talk to her. That's possible. Which is just a godsend. I don't know what else I can say. All right. So, well, this research really seems to have put on a map that there's a genetic locus for this. Something that a lot of us have been 
talking about and getting at for a while is beginning to be validated. And it's important for so many reasons. One of the reasons we talked about in the question is beginning to validate that energy deficit has to be taken out of the equation if a person is to recover. Nutritional rehabilitation is essentially important. That's a wonderful thing that that is beginning to get established. Another thing that's really incredible is understanding that there are genetic underpinnings, influences to a person's development of an eating disorder such as anorexia and other eating disorders as well, of course, I think will really begin to help some of the shame and stigma that people feel when they are diagnosed with an eating disorder. And that's huge because it's shame and stigma that keeps many things locked down. It keeps a person's ability to recover locked down, for sure. It keeps the person's ability to share experiences, share information. All of these things locked down when somebody is too ashamed to say, that's me, I have anorexia. I was horribly, horrifically ashamed to start with to say, I have anorexia. And that was just because of that stereotype of anorexia is something that silly little girls get and they do it because they want to be something that they're not. And I just didn't, I couldn't handle that diagnosis. Of course, I obviously got over that because now pretty much all I talk about is that I had anorexia. So at some point I got over that, but that shame was there for a very long time. And my inability to identify as a person who would develop anorexia was one of the things that was um, contributed to my inability to recognize I have anorexia and then understand and I need to do something about this. So that's a huge piece that I hope that some of the shame and stigma will start to get lifted as we begin to understand more about the genetic component to this illness. But I do want to point out something here that actually it was just after I'd spoken to Cindy that I was thinking about this. I don't want anybody to listen to this podcast and come out with the idea that meaning that if you're genetically predisposed to something, that means that you don't have any control over it whatsoever and you can't do anything about it. It's actually the opposite from that. So you might come away from this conversation thinking, oh, well, I have compulsive movement, but apparently that's part of a genetic um, part of my you know, makeup is to be predisposed to compulsive movement if I have an eating disorder. So therefore, I don't need to try and stem my compulsive movement. I don't need to try to overcome my compulsive movement. There's no point. Actually, the opposite. If you have the information that you are genetically predisposed to become compulsive about movement, that actually gives you the information that it's your responsibility, if you know that, to be careful around it and not allow yourself to fall into the trap of being compulsive around movement. Just really wanted to say that out loud, because I know how an eating disorder brain works, and I know how my eating disorder brain works. And that sort of, this, you know, you're, you're genetically prone to restrict food, move compulsively, etc., etc. Might have sounded like permission to me at one point. It's not. It's actually responsibility... And accountability is actually what that is. And I can get really excited about that because I believe very strongly in people with eating disorders. I believe in their ability to recover. And I think that the more 
responsibility and accountability and understanding and science that we give people with eating disorders, the better they are able to understand what's going on in their mind and what's going on in their body and help themselves out of it. So, like Cindy said, you got to watch this space because when that edgy request comes out, I'm going to be letting you know about it and we have all got to step in. All of us with eating disorders have got to step in and we've got to spit in a pot or whatever it takes and I will look forward to doing so. Thank you so much, Dr. Bulick, for coming on the podcast and I'm so excited about what you're working on next. Cheers and until next time, cheerio.